Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Vinnie. I am the lead pastor at Asbury, and I hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ. I hope it will increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it will be at least a little bit entertaining as we go. Let's begin. Now, we've taken a few weeks off the podcast. That's because I've been uh, both traveling, some for continuing education, some for vacation, and then in the middle of that we had a week of vacation Bible school, and there just has been no time to do any prep work for the podcast or sit down and record it. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, bearing with us as we took a few weeks off. It is back now. We will not be taking, I'm not anticipating at least, skipping any other weeks this year. Uh, We've got a lot to do. So we are in the book of Genesis. That's because on June the 9th, we began our summer Bible reading plan here at Asbury. That is 100 days through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or as Jesus called them, the Bible. Uh, and, and that gets me to what I want to start off with today, which is something, this is the dead horse I love to beat. You need to read the Old Testament. You need to read the Torah in particular, And you need to understand it. I've said this several times, but it's worth reiterating because I know that there are people who still don't believe me when I say this. And I think for others, it just takes time to sink in. Um, You cannot understand the New Testament if you do not understand the Old Testament. And, And I want to be really clear, that's not my opinion And it's not like, oh, you'll miss some small, subtle things here and there. No, no, no. You will completely miss what the Gospels mean. You will completely miss what it is Jesus does for us in the Gospels and on the cross and in the resurrection. You will completely miss what he is telling us to do in response to his work on the cross and in the resurrection if you do not understand the Old Testament. You will never understand any of Paul's letters or what Paul is trying to teach us in his letters, if you do not understand the Old Testament, it is impossible. It is flat out impossible to understand what the New Testament means and what it is teaching us and how we are supposed to live as Christians in light of Jesus if you do not understand the Old Testament. You will get it wrong. Period. It is absolutely 100% relevant to the Christian life to know what the Old Testament says, to know what it teaches. The Old Testament is where God lays out the morality that we are supposed to live our lives by. Morality is never redefined in the New Testament, my friends. The morals laid out in the Old Testament are assumed in the New Testament to be the morals by which Christians have to live. Now that people get confused because sometimes they don't always understand what the morals of the Old Testament are, right? The dietary laws, the purity laws, the sacrifices, those aren't morals. But the other things, right? Um, People always zero in on on the sexual morals of the Old Testament laid out, which which are assumed throughout the text, but they are spelled out specifically in Leviticus 18 and 20, and by the way, just so we're all clear, that's not just about homosexuality. Uh, Those chapters talk in detail about human sexuality, 
and they they list a lot of other sexual sins, um, which we should stress, all of us are guilty of at least some of those. That's a really important point, but but sexual morality is defined in those few chapters, and it is never redefined. But that's just one part of it, because the Old Testament has a lot to say on how we treat immigrants, which is going to offend some of you, frankly. Uh, but let's be honest about that. The Old Testament lays out how we as God's people are required to treat immigrants. We aren't given any exceptions to that choice, and that requirement is never changed. The Old Testament gives clear instructions on how we are to handle debt. And I can tell you right now, Christians in America have not paid attention to that part of it at all. Because the instructions of the Old Testament is that every seven years, all outstanding debts are to be forgiven. Period. No exceptions. Doesn't matter why they took out the debt. Doesn't matter how much they have left to pay. You forgive the debt. Every seven years. Period. For everyone. Because the Old Testament always assumes that the lender bears the moral and fiscal responsibility for the existence of the debt, not the borrower. And that is the exact opposite of how most of us treat it. You can see why this actually matters. That ought to change your perspective on, on things going on in our country right now in a lot of ways. It may not like it. You may not think it makes economic sense. But that is the, that is the morality of God which we are expected to follow. So you see, we need to read the Old Testament. Now all of the, the stuff I've just talked about is in Leviticus. <laughs> so you're not there yet. We're in Genesis still. But, but these books, these first five books of the Bible, they are not independent of each other. They're, they function kind of like the seasons of a TV show, right? Uh, imagine a show that goes for five seasons and each one is related to all the other ones. They, they work together. You need them all in order to understand all the others. And they all end in a cliffhanger, right? Uh, Genesis is where we get the promise to Abraham, but by the end of the book, Abraham's descendant is in the wrong country. He's not in the promised land. Um, and it, will be, it won't be until the book of Joshua, actually, when they are the very last book of the, the Torah, when they are back in the promised land. So it's this grand epic story which teaches us a lot and it lays out our morality. And I'm going I'm to circle back to the morality a bit for a second because I, it's, it, we have to hit this hard. We have to hit this hard because the morality of the Bible, the morality of the Old Testament, is not the morality we see displayed in the church today. Period. It's not. We have done a terrible job of upholding that morality because we have adopted the morality of our political parties. So the Old Testament gives us clear sexual morals that, that do not align with the values of the Democratic Party. It gives us clear morals for hospitality and treatment of the poor and treatment of debts that do not align with the values of the Republican Party. Hot button issues. If we are going to be faithful Christians, our morality and the way we live our lives will not line up with the rest of the world. And that is true whether, whether we're talking about liberals, whether we're talking about conservatives. 
we have to remember that, we have to be okay with that, and we get that from the Old Testament. Now, we view the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, but we still need to read and understand the Old Testament, and that begins with the book of Genesis. This book, um, and actually, just to, I mean, all five of these books are effectively anonymous. We don't really know who wrote them. They, um, uh, tradition has it that Moses wrote them. Um, that's unlikely. He might have written portions of them. Genesis in particular is not a, a work that was likely written in, in, in pieces over a long period of time. In all likelihood, it is completed in the form that we have it now while the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. And again, we don't know who wrote it, but much of this book would have been completed while they were in exile in Babylon. And that tell, and so you know, you're reading it through that lens. As, as the, the first people to read the completed work were um, the exiles we're going back and reading the story of how God first promised them the promised land, reclaiming that identity for themselves. Now let's talk about dates. We can date a lot of the Old Testament stuff pretty well. You know, we know that Rome comes in and conquers right around the time that, that it switches from B.C. to A.D., about 100 years before that, so 100 BC, Judah rebelled against the Syrian Empire and gained independence until Rome came back in and, and conquered them. 100 years before that, around the 200s BC, Syria and Egypt, which were the regional powers, kind of were squabbling over Judah and sort of took turns ruling it. 100 years before that, 300 BC was right around the time that Alexander the Great came in and conquered the area. Uh, 100 years before that is when Ezra and Nehemiah, those events take place. That's the return from exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And about 100 years before that, the 500s BC, is when Ezekiel is active. That's the fall of Judah and the conquering of Babylon by Persia. 100 years before that, the 600s, Jeremiah is active as a prophet at that time. Babylon is the superpower. That's when King Josiah reigns over the kingdom of Judah. And a hundred years before that, in the 700s, that's when the prophets Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah are active. And Assyria is the superpower of the world at that time. And that's when the northern kingdom of Israel is, just, is annihilated. hundred years before that. Nice how it all breaks up into like hundred year increments. In the 800s, BC. The prophets Elijah and Elisha are active. Hundred years before that, King Solomon reigns and dies, and the nation splits in two. Hundred years before that is the time of about the one thousands BC. That's the time of Saul and David. Hundred years before that, the eleven hundreds BC. That's the era of the judges, and twelve hundred BC, roughly, is Moses and the Exodus in the Book of Joshua. And anything before that, we really don't have good dates for. 
it gets too difficult to pin down exactly when it happens. So in the book of Genesis, we're kind of in this murky period where we don't know exactly timeline-wise when all of these events are happening. Because at this point, you're talking about things that happened over 3,000 years ago. Maybe 4,000 years ago, maybe 5,000. We, we know it's less than 6,000 years ago. Only because we know Abraham comes out of one of the Sumerian cities in Mesopotamia, and we can date those to roughly 6,000 years ago, and, and agriculture exists, but... Yeah, man. It's, it's murky. It's murky. And Genesis has two parts. You have the first 11 chapters, and then you have the story of Abraham picking up in chapter 12. Um, and it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot. But this, it, this is essentially the story of how things start. God creates the world. He calls order out of chaos, light out of darkness. Humans mess it up. And then God begins trying to fix things. Now, I do not believe it is necessary for us to believe that there were seven literal days of creation and on the seventh day. And because, one, um, the, the, the opening chapters of Genesis are pretty clearly intended as allegory. They're not, it's not a history book. It's a theological book. The, the opening chapters in particular are trying to tell the story of the creation of a temple. Creation is God's temple. That theme gets picked up later on when they are designing the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem. And all of the imagery in first the tabernacle and then the temple is creational imagery. Trees and fruits and plants and animals and creatures to call into mind the idea that all creation is God's temple. And we are the image of God placed within his temple. So we have a purpose. We are God's image bearers in the midst of his temple. We have a job to do. We reflect God's goodness and love and wisdom and order into creation, and we in turn reflect the praises of all creation back to God. We are the stewards of God's garden. We are meant to bring his order into creation. Which means, when we go astray, when we sin, when we aren't doing our job, it throws all of creation into disarray. And that's where we are now. So, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis, we don't need to necessarily sit here and think, yeah, okay, seven literal days. We, we can acknowledge, and I'm going to get... Real specific, we can acknowledge that dinosaurs were real and that humans did not coexist with them. We can acknowledge that, that the earth is billions of years old, not 6,000 years old. We can acknowledge that, that there is this process of evolution happening. But we can also push back on, on the idea that evolution is random, that natural selection is happening. Because we know that, that God created us, and, and we can trust that God takes an active hand in his creation. Evolution happens, but it's a guided process. And, and this lines up, by the way, with things that we know about the world. Okay, uh, If you, like me, are obsessed with nature documentaries, you will, you will be familiar with the idea that there are things which 
scientists will refer to as like an evolutionary arms race where you have an animal and its predator which have evolved in incredibly specific ways related to each other, right? They've evolved specific um, defenses, specific means of overcoming those defenses, or you have animals that have evolved um, specific color patterns so that they look like another animal that's poisonous. Friends, those things don't happen randomly. Simple logic tells us that they don't happen randomly. Um, and what's happening very often in the scientific community now is something that you could refer to as scientism or evolutionism or Darwinism, um, where the tenets of Darwinian evolution are kind of taken as matters of, of faith and orthodoxy and can't be challenged. Um, even, even though there is reason to doubt them and to say, you know, this may not be totally right. Um, but that's off on a tangent. So we can acknowledge that there is, there, there, there is evolution happening. There are things going on in the world that there is a fossil record. We can also acknowledge that God created the world. God is active in the world. God created all life in the world. He designs it. He orders it. He guides it. So if evolution is happening, it's a process guided and designed and shaped by God. Which means that we can acknowledge that there probably weren't. You know, Adam and Eve as the only two humans in existence when they popped into the world. Which, by the way, makes sense when you read the story because their children go off and there's already other cities elsewhere when their children leave them. Um, what we might say, though, is it seems very likely that there were two people, humans, hominids, might not have been homo sapiens. And... You don't need to get into the nerdy details of human evolution, but two hominids who God called and gave a special purpose to. And they failed in their calling. That's an idea worth exploring, but we don't have the time to do it today. And, and I, you know, it's, it's one of those areas of theology that people are only just beginning to really start to think about and question. This idea that maybe they were just two people who God called out and gave a special purpose to. Worth pondering. In any case, the, the creation stories in Genesis are not meant to be histories. They're meant to be theological stories that teach us that our purpose is to be God's image bearers in the world. We are his representatives here on earth. And we failed. And that means that the consequences of our sin is, is not, it's not just about us. It's about the whole of creation. Because our purpose is to care for God's creation. When we fail in that purpose, all creation suffers with us. This is really an important point to understand and drive home. Um, that, that the world does not work the way it should because we are not doing our job properly. This again goes back into this idea that our morality does not line up neatly with political ideology because this means we have to take seriously the health of the world we live in because we have been charged with its care. We were created to care for it and we're going to have to answer to God for the way in which we've cared for it. So creation care and environmentalism are actually things Christians need to take seriously. 
Now again, I think that there may be some ways in which um, we might differ from, from secular environmentalists on what that it looks like and, and how best to accomplish that and what the end goal is, but we better take it seriously. So after things fail and things sort of spiral out of control, God reveals his ultimate plan is to call this man Abraham and his family. Which raises some questions because it becomes clear very quickly that this man Abraham and his family, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not the best people. <laughs> but I think that's the point. They are, you know, he, he picks Abraham, and, I, and by the way, Jewish authors and theologians have, have spent a long time trying to figure out just why God picked Abraham. Because, of course, he's their ancestor, and they want to know, what's the deal? And in a lot of ways, the general consensus seems to be just that, well, he just liked Abraham the best. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true. I think Abraham maybe had a specific set of circumstances that would enable God to uh, fulfill his promises in ways that were clearly supernatural and divine, right? He's an old man with no children. His wife is old. If God's going to give him descendants, biological descendants from his wife, it's going to be a miracle. Um, he's a nomad, right? He, he uh, is a nomadic shepherd person. And so easy for him to pick up and move along to the promised land, but also um, a bit unnatural for him to settle in one location and claim that as his territory and settle down. Um, and he probably, he must have been predisposed to, to some level of faith and trust because we see, of course, later on that he has quite a bit of faith and trust. But other than those things, those specific conditions, Abraham seems like a thoroughly average person. He's a normal shepherd guy. He's got a wife, he's got sheep, lives in tents. He makes mistakes. He, he's flawed like any of us. He doesn't seem like he's just especially smart or especially holy. And with his descendants, we see that again, they, they very often are just normal people who find themselves in extraordinary circumstances. I think that's the point. That the amazing things that happen, that the importance of what's going on is not because of these people and their special qualities. It's because of their God. Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, that comes from God. Jacob is a great... Jacob is a terrible, terrible person. Right? I, I mean, he lies, he cheats, he steals. God uses him anyway. His sons mostly are not good people. God uses them anyway, and in fact, they are the direct ancestors of Jesus. And that, I think, is part of the point. The story is not about them. It's not about their heroics. It's not about their incredible faith. It's not about their incredible holiness. It is about their God. It is about the God who is going to save the world. The God who is going to enable humanity to, to fulfill our original purpose as his stewards in creation. 
It's a story about God. It's all about God. It is about God using flawed people, people who consistently make bad choices, which are self-serving and short-sighted, and using them anyway. And accomplishing his purposes through them anyway. It's one of the reasons I love this book. I love Genesis. Because it is so improbable that God would pick these people and that he would stick with them. And I think that's the thing, right? You, If you read it with fresh eyes, and I know that's hard for most of us to do because most of us have been reading the Bible our entire lives. But read, try, if, you, if, you, if you can approach it, as if you'd never read it before, one of the things you might start to wonder is, when is God going to ditch these people and go get someone actually worthy of him? And the answer is, he doesn't. He doesn't do it ever. He sticks with them. Which means, he sticks with us. We, we should be able to see ourselves in these stories. We have to remove this idea that these are like the heroes of the faith that, that we could never measure up. The reality is we can. Some of us probably are more faithful, more holy, more righteous. Not me, but maybe some of you are. Um, we should be able to see ourselves, our flaws, our mistakes, our selfishness, our short-sightedness reflected back at us in these stories and draw comfort from the knowledge that, hey, God didn't stop using them. He didn't turn away from them. So he won't turn away from me either. He will continue to use me. He will continue to be my God. Even when I mess up. Even when I'm not worthy. Even when I make foolish, selfish, short-sighted decisions. He is my God. So to me, Genesis is an immensely comforting book. Because it reminds me that yes, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fall short. I will make choices that are the wrong choices. I am not infallible. I will be unwise. I will be selfish. I will be short-sighted. And God is with me anyway. That's the book of Genesis. We'll be back next week with a podcast on Exodus. Until then, God bless.